Hey, thank you for being here. I'm Rick Donlin. Um, this is a talk entitled Justice and Healthcare, but uh, I want to thank, he's actually here, uh, Jason Stevens is over there on the wall uh, eating something out of a bag. Um, Jason designed the, um, the keynote slides that you're going to see. Jason designed the shirts that I hope that you'll like. We're going to have shirts as door prizes as part of this talk. And Jason also designed the 11-foot-tall tower that's in our, our, uh, on the ground floor in the display area, Resurrection Health and Res- Resurrection Family Medicine have a display area, and there's an 11-foot tower there that, no, no kidding, yesterday the fire marshal came and sprayed with flame retardant because it was, it was dangerous to the well-being of everyone here. <laughs> so, Jason helped with all that. Um, I... Uh, I have a freakishly large family. I'm um, 52, almost 52 years old. I've been married for 24 years. I found out halfway through my marriage that my wife had a Chinese boyfriend, and that was very disturbing to me. <laughs> the homeschoolers are like, wait, is that, is he serious? Yeah. So we have adopted children for the concrete people in the room. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah. Um, Many, many years ago, 1986, I started medical school in my hometown of New Orleans, and I met, there you go, some drunken Cajun in the back of the room. <laughs> yeah, two of them, actually, something like that. Yeah, I made a pact when we were freshman medical students that we would work together as Christian doctors. We didn't really have a clear idea what that meant, but we made a pact. We were very serious about it. It was a blood pact. The blood part was if anybody backed out, we would kill them. We would So... There's only four of us now. There were six back then. But <laughs> so, in 1995, uh, after residency training in Memphis, Tennessee, I moved to Memphis for residency. My, my medical school friends moved to other cities, but we came back together, and we opened a health center in the south part of Memphis in 1995. It was called originally Christ Community Medical Clinic, and it was just us and some people that we convinced to join us that we'd been working with in ERs and so forth. It's grown over the years, and it's a complicated story, which we don't have time, but I just want to sort of give you the background that I'm I'm talking to you for. Basically, for 20 years, we've been working in Memphis to develop uh, care, what we hope is just health care for the people in our city. So um, there's some other odd things to what we do. Um, Maybe 12 or 14 years ago, we began to move into the communities where we had clinics, so my own family I think for probably 13 years, we've lived in a neighborhood called Binghampton. And around that same time, we started trying to figure out how to do church. And so we've been planting house churches in multiple inner-city communities in Memphis. This happens to be one of the house churches in, the, in a neighborhood called Orange Mound. Um, we began training family medicine residents about five years ago. And so this is the graduation ceremony we had in June for our outgoing class. And that's all of the interns and new residents. So there's... 22 residents in our program now, and they live also, all 100% of them live in the inner city communities of Memphis where we, where we work, and all of them are involved in house churches, and most of them either want to be medical missionaries overseas, or they want to, they want to duplicate in Memphis or in other places what we've been doing there. So just the front row there, if you can look at it, just as an example of what we're talking about, um, those are the graduates. So Andrew Kim right there is is on faculty with us now in Memphis. Next to him is Alex Q. Alex and his wife are here. They work at a Christian clinic outside, I'm sorry, in Kansas City for the poor. Um, Marla Potter next to, next to Alex there it works at the L.A. Christian Health Center in, in, on Skid Row in Los Angeles. In the middle is Donald Dickert, who's in the room, uh, works at Christ Community Health Services in Augusta, which is a sister ministry that we love in Augusta, Georgia. Um, Chris Peoples to the to the right there, is still in Memphis with us and is likely going to go overseas. And lastly, on the right, is Brett Malone, who is uh, in a, a hospital in Niger now. All right, so it, it wasn't what we set out to do, but it became clear over a pr- pretty short period of time that the same sorts of lunatics who would move into an inner-city community in Memphis and engage risk and make their mom and dad nervous and um, would deal with limited resources, would face their fears, would um, those same sorts of skills are what people need to go overseas. And so we've sent over the years many people. Um, this is just, a, frankly, a small sampling of the people who've 
trained for a time in our setting and then have gone overseas. And typically we try to drive people uh, to places that you'll hear about, I hope, in this conference that are unreached places where healthcare ministries might be one of the few ways you can enter into a community and you can try to establish the church. So North India, Afghanistan, Somalia, places like that. Um, okay, so one of our values, we have, we have several values and we're full of ourselves. One of them, believe it or not, is self-abnegation. So I, could someone say that for me properly? Self, I think it means sacrifice. But the, the one I want to always make a plug for is obedience to the Bible. All right, and that's, I hope you love the Bible. We're going to talk today, most of our time is going to be centered around a single passage in the Bible. And so if you're, you're my target audience, you're a young person here, you're in training as an undergraduate or a professional school or you're a resident or something like that, you just have to soak your fat head in the Bible. It's, uh, it's irreplaceably important. And the thing about medical students and their ilk and the people in other training programs is they can't do what everybody else says. Oh, I just don't have time. I can't read. I know you people. You can learn an encyclopedia in about a weekend. <laughs> you, can, you can and must study the Bible. Okay. Um, our, our talk is about justice, but we can't really get to justice until we talk about the kingdom of God. I just came from Steve Noblet's talk. Some of you were there. which was He was talking about the importance of understanding this, and this is a fundamental thing. Like, You've got to know that we have, we have a torn world. It's like it's cursed here. Okay, There are two kings. There is a usurper who is a liar and an oppressor and an evildoer who has a kingdom that functions under certain values and rules, and he is ascendant now. And we have a great and glorious right king who will return again in glory to judge the living and dead, whose kingdom will never end, whose kingdom is ruled by entirely different principles and characteristics. And, and as comfortable as we are in this world, if you're a disciple of Jesus in this world, you're living in, in foreign territory. You're behind enemy lines. You're an agent who's been sort of paratrooped down into an enemy territory that functions according to the rules that are different from your king. Such that when you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you're asking for a regime change. You're, you're the resistance. You're trying to advance the, the values of your king. All right, so bad king, good king, right? Sack a stinking lion, kill and destroying king, your king. Everybody clear on that? Good. If not, come talk to me afterwards. <laughs> okay. All right. Pushing the same point. That bad king comes only, according to Jesus, to kill, to destroy. What is the steal, kill, and destroy? And his language that he speaks, his na- native language is lies. Hello? Lies. He operates through intimidation and fear. Big one, big one on fear. He uses fear. He may use fear even as I'm talking to you in the next 45 minutes. He's a liar. He's a usurper. All right? And you can see him in popular culture. All right? All right. I'm glad you laughed. I always like to get laughs. But I ain't kidding. Okay, the reason these stories, these epic meta-narratives are so popular in our culture is because they tell the true story. Okay, there really is a cosmic struggle for the world. And there really is a dark, powerful force that rules by fear, by exploitation, by, by crushing the weak, that wants to bring all things under its own power for his, his exploitation, especially of the neediest, the people who are without defenders, it's real. Your, your non-Christian friends love the stories because it's true. Okay? And just as there really are, is a powerful dark force that is reigning and trying to bring everything under his oppressive control, there is the necessity of a small band of believers who see what nobody else sees. Luke and Leah and Han, right? The Fellowship of the Ring. Dumbledore's army. Right? 
where the conventional wisdom doesn't even recognize the problem or see what the darkness that's going on. There's a few people who commit themselves to faith and sacrifice and suffering and loss. And they bind themselves in loyalty one to another. And they unsheathe their swords and they charge into whatever that line Gimli has about. Well, unbelievable odds, certain death. Let's go, let's go. Thus ends my talk, okay? <laughs> All right. So, that's not Batman, by the way, the shadow there, okay? That, that's, that's my attempt to say that the power of darkness and the rules of the kingdom of the, of the air, or the ruler now at work in the, in the world, according to the New Testament, overshadows every good and perfect in, imperfect institution of humanity. And... and Remember, humans are made in the image of God. So there's really beautiful, powerful, creative things that happen through human beings in the arts and in medicine and law and whatever else we've got up there, politics and love. But it's all tainted. All right. It's all corrupted. And again, our job is to wrestle back that which is the rightful king's and, and bring his values and his purposes and the goodness of his kingdom to the world and to ourselves. All right, so there he is. A painting 600 years old. That's a king. Okay, maybe you are put off by it. I'm, I told you I grew up in New Orleans and grew up Catholic. Some of my Protestant friends don't really get into art. If you wanted to Google that, you would like probably put in buff Jesus in red or something like that. <laughs> The man who painted that picture understood Jesus was a king. Do you see it? He's wrapped in royal robe. He has a crown being placed on his hand. Do you see what's under his feet? Death and sin. That's your king. Okay, maybe you don't like that imagination of him, but that's your king. He's ruling. He's exalted. He is triumphant. His kingdom has come, but it hasn't come. Right? We live between these two incarnations of the king. The central event of history was his death and resurrection. Everything before it was different. The king has come, and yet he hasn't yet come, right? And again, we live between the first and the second appearings of this king. Okay, so we're going to talk today about Psalm 72. And the reason we're going to talk about Psalm 72 is because it's a widely agreed upon to be a messianic psalm. I hope you love the Psalms. The Psalms are poetry, more particularly their musical lyrics. So they, they appeal to that side of our brain that's creative. They use uh, imagery. It's not um, English poetry necessarily. We like rhyme and meter. Hebrew poetry is a little different, but it's poetic nonetheless, and it speaks to our hearts. In Psalm 72, whether you're a Jewish scholar, one of the sages, the rabbi, most famous rabbis, or Christian scholars, you understand this is about the Messiah. This is about the coming king. Okay. So this is important only a little bit, but I want you to know it. The, the Psalms have been divided into five, probably by rabbis who wanted to make the Psalms similar to the Torah, to the first five books of the Old Testament. So they've been divided like this for centuries. And it happens at Psalm 72, if you look at that slide, is the end of section 2, right? Yeah. Okay, so that's, that's going to make sense to you a little bit later. Now, it's probably too small for you to read. But so if you've got a Bible on your phone or an, an actual book, I used to make these things books, and um, why don't you pull it out? We're going to use the NIV. My friend Sarah Dickert is going to come and read it. Um, I hope you won't think this is hokey, but in honor of God and his word, would you mind standing while we read Psalm 72? Oh, you want to try to read the screen? That would work. Just pull that mic out. That just went blank. That was crazy. That's gonna... We will have some technical problem here. It happens every year. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. May he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people, the hills the fruit of righteousness. May he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. 
May he crush the oppressor. May he endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon, through all generations. May he be like rain following on a mowed field, like showers watering the earth. In his days, the righteous flourish, and prosperity abound till the moon is no more. May he rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes bow before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Teresh and the distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. May all kings bow down before him. Sorry, may all kings bow down to him, and all nations serve him. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy, and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold from Sheba be given him. May people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. May grain abound throughout the land. On the tops of the hills may it sway. May the crops flourish like Lebanon and thrive like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. Then all nations will be blessed through him, and they will call him blessed. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Verse 20. Thus concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse. Very good. Thank you. All right. All right. So I mentioned door prizes, and I know you're a competitive lot. I know you people, like I said. So here's where we're going. I have had a long time, because I knew I was going to do this talk, to think about this psalm and look at it and study it. And I've determined, and I am always right, right? The teacher's always right. There are four themes in this psalm that describe the kingdom of Jesus, the Messianic kingdom. Okay? And it won't surprise you that the fourth and most important is justice, or the kingdom being just. But there are three others. And so while it's up there, when we get to these points... The person who risks all and raises their hand and guesses what I want, reads my mind, right? I will give you a card with which you can redeem at our, at our booth for one of these shirts, okay? $5 value, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> all right, let's jump into it. This is um, the last of this section, as I mentioned to you, and this is a song, a psalm of Solomon. So there's a little bit of debate about this, but... What I think is true, I think what a lot of people believe is true, is that David wrote this. You remember verse 20, what we just said, thus concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse. That David wrote this at the, at the coronation of his son Solomon, when Solomon took over the kingdom from David. David was still alive when that happened, if you remember. All right, so, endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. So this is a prayer for David, if this is the correct understanding, on behalf of his heir. All right, and, and those of you who know the Old Testament know that's no small thing, right? There is something called the Davidic Covenant. We don't have time to look at it, but there's a biblical citation there if you want to. But you remember the story. David is finally enthroned in Jerusalem. All Israel is his, he's ruling over all Israel. He has built himself a swanky palace with cedar. And he has the thought to himself, here I am living in a cedar palace, but the tabernacle of God, the tent that's been with Israel since the time of the wilderness, is in a tent that God doesn't have a house. So I'm going to build a house for God, he says. And he tells his prophet Nathan that. And Nathan initially says, you're God's man. Whatever you have in your heart, do it. It's good. But Nathan gets a message from the Lord and sends the message back to David. And the message is essentially, you're not going to build my house. You're, you're a man of blood. It's good that you want to do this, but let me tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to build a house for you meaning a lineage, meaning a dynasty. You will never fail ever for all eternity to have one of your descendants rule before me. So this is the Messiah. This is the son of David. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem in the Gospels and they call him the son of David, that's a very powerful title. That means he's the manifestation of this promise God made to David about always having a descendant. Okay, so we're going to take that verse out of it because it's just the introduction of David praying for his son. And we're going to take out 
the benediction or the doxology, because at the end of all five of those sections of the Book of Psalms that I mentioned to you, there's a doxology, a praise period. So what you see in red there, let me see if I've got them. Yeah, praise be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. These are beautiful truths, right? Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. This concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse. So for the purposes of our talk, we're going to pull out verse 1, which is just the introductory verse, and we're going to pull out the doxology and the conclusion of the section, and that's going to leave us with 16 verses. You following me? Okay. 16 verses, four themes. And we're going to go from smallest mentioned, just between us girls, two and a half verses, four verses, 4.5 verses, five verses. Now, as my 16-year-old pointed out, Psalms are not math, Dad. But in the conflict, it's not a conflict, the tension we have in Memphis, the tension the church has between proclaiming the gospel, between going to all the nations and declaring that Jesus is Lord and establishing his kingdom by the proclamation of the Bible, verses, shouldn't be verses, but intention with, meet people's needs, go to the afflicted and the needy and the oppressed and help them, I win. Five verses, four and a half. Okay. In Memphis, it's Chuck Cheatham and I going back and forth. Our residents have to get torn between Cheatham, who is mad that anyone lives in the United States, any Christian person lives in the United States of America right now. You all are in sin by being in this room. You should go to the airport now. Does Louisville have an airport? We could ship everybody out. All right. Babbling. Four kingdom characteristics. Going from the least mentioned to the most mentioned, the most being justice. Who wants to take a risk? Oh, hand goes up. Yes. Righteousness. Okay, that's a great answer, but it's not my answer that I want. Restoration is a good answer. It's not the answer I want. Yeah. Peace. So you're, yeah, all good, all good. Not what I want. Mercy. Blessed. We're all using the same synonyms for the same sort of thing, aren't we? This isn't working very well. What you got? What was that? Advocate. Advocate. Okay, so that's certainly in there. That's number four. We're t- talking about one that's here a little bit less. Yes, ma'am. Okay, judgment. judgment. Good. Not what I want. Deliverer. Deliverer. All right. I'm going to do two more, and then I'm, this is a fail. Yeah. <laughs> Servanthood. Okay, so this is total ripoff. This woman is in my house church. I did this talk Sunday. <laughs> so she's... It's actually the second one. Okay, Tabitha, that's, that's funny. All right. All right, before I tell you in my utter fail what, what I wanted you to say, I'm going to try to show you why I think it makes sense. But I want us, for all four of these, to understand two, two things. We have to layer these things on top of what we said already. I said already once before, I want you to remember, the kingdom is here, but it's not here. It's now, but it's not now. Right? So all four of these things, there's a present aspect to them and a future coming aspect to them, and we live in the tension in the time between the two of them. And these apply to you. This isn't an academic thing. It's not just about the Messiah. You work for the Messiah. You become like the Messiah. You take up your cross also. You no longer live for yourself, but for him who died for you and was raised again. You are an agent of the king's kingdom. Okay. Eternal. All right. Sorry. Again, ours reading, and you had Sarah read it to you. But the kingdom is eternal. Here's here's my justification for that being number one. And this is two and a half verses, as I said. Here they are. May he endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon, through all generations. Long may he live. May gold from Sheba be given to him. May people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. Do you buy it? Okay. This king, his kingdom will have no end, as the Mass says. It's true. Right? It is inaugurated. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God in glory. We don't see it completely, but we know the king is here. And it ought to fuel us. It fuels me. It, and I admit it's better fuel as I get older than when I was younger. But... 
There's a coming kingdom. It's, it's there in the scriptures. It's there in our hearts. There's a city, a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem. There is the very presence of the king. There's water that flows from his throne. There's trees of life. There's a reward for his people. And his kingdom will have no end. No tears, no suffering, no death, no disease, no need for doctors or anybody else to fix anything. All right. That leaves us 13 and a half verses. We're not going to try to take a survey for number two. Um, I'll give three shirts to the first three people who come up here and ask me for them later on, okay? <laughs> it is prosperous, okay? Now, I do a, um, in the last year or so, I've done a, a lot of emergency room work, okay? And I've done a lot of nights. This is not fair or just. This is evidence that the evil one rules the universe, <laughs> okay? <laughs> Right. And sometimes, not often, but sometimes I get some time off and I go back to the doctor's lounge at the little hospital I work at. Is, it's more like the doctor's closet. It's not a very impressive place. And I turn on cable TV and they have some really evil people on at night talking about prosperity. And what they really want is people to send them money. All right, so I'm not talking about that. You know that, right? I'm talking about what happened to me, I hope to you, when I got the Holy Spirit inside of me. I'm talking about what we see in the redemptive stories of people who break addictions and who have marriages healed, right? Who have reconciliation, who, who see even in difficulties the powerful, redemptive work of the cross. This is what happens when missionaries succeed in planting the gospel places, okay? I've got, um, I don't know what I got here. Yeah, these are the verses. Sorry. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people, the hills, the fruit of righteousness. May he be like rain falling on a moon field, like showers watering the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and prosperity abound till the moon is no more. May grain abound throughout the land on the tops of the hills may its way. May the crops flourish like Lebanon and thrive like the grass of the field. This is the kingdom of Jesus. There's prosperity and thriving and Flourishing. Do you see the words? You're an agent of that. If you're bringing the gospel, if you're bringing love, if you're representing the values of the kingdom. Uh, this guy, Robert Woodbury, on the right, I actually met him once um, in all places in Afghanistan. His father is a professor emeritus at Fuller about uh, Muslim studies. His brother runs the basically the Missionary Aviation Fellowship for that, or he did, that part of the world. This was probably eight or ten years ago. We were in western Afghanistan, and the family came through to see a minaret, a famous minaret that's like on one of these National Geographic shows. And they stayed one night with us in the middle of nowhere in Afghanistan. And I sat next to him, and, and I, everybody wanted to get around his dad, who was like the emeritus dude of Muslim stuff. And I was bummed that I had to sit next to the son, but he was way more interesting. Okay. And he's done this research, and I'm just going to boil it down for you. Whenever Protestant missionaries, and I'm not against Catholic missionaries, it's just that Catholic missionaries usually went very closely connected to their governments, the Portuguese and the Spaniards, right? Protestant missionaries, not as connected to their governments, wherever they went in the history of the, of the Protestant missionary movement, things got better, okay? And they got better for marginalized people. Women's rights uniformly improve in places where the gospel takes root. Children and thriving and health, even politics improve when the gospel permeates cultures. The kingdom of Jesus is a kingdom of prosperity. We haven't seen the fullness of it yet. There's still disease. We heard about it last night. But we're breaking through. We're bringing that characteristic of his kingdom in a measured way now. Nine and a half verses left. It is universal. You can't read them from here, but I blew them up for you. May he rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes bow down to him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. Then all nations will be blessed through him and they will call 
and they will call him blessed. So some of you are astute enough to recognize that last verse is a clear reference to Genesis 12, right? To the, the promise to Abraham. Through the seed of Abraham, all nations will be blessed. This is poetic language, but it's saying from, uh, what's that, this land is my land song? From the New York Harbor to the, to San Diego. (laughs) This is the known world for the writer of this psalm. As far as you can see, from sea to sea, from north to south, from east to west, all nations, all places, everywhere will worship this one king. His kingdom is universal. All other kings are swept away. There is no king but this one king. And he will eventually, the Messiah, be worshipped by all nations and even all kings of all nations. That's who you work for. And it is happening. It's here and not yet here. This is a six-year-old map of the status of world evangelization. And where you see green, the gospel is established. The church is planted. There are... Disciples who are sharing their faith with others. The places where you see yellow, it's in between. There is a church established and there's a witness to a fair number of people, but there's still limited, relatively limited access to the gospel. And the places where you see red, very, very few Christian people, very few churches planted. The only way it goes from red to green is if Christian people become missionaries. And it's a little bit of an oversimplification, but all the cool places are already taken. Hawaii won, you know. (laughs) What's left is tough, frankly. If we're going to advance the universality of the king. Okay, if if this conference is about world missions primarily, like we ought to be calling ourselves to go to the toughest, most difficult, unreached places to advance the king's authority. The kingdom of Jesus is the place where Jesus' rule is. And there are huge parts of the world, billions of people, where his reign is unknown. His name is unknown. All right, that leaves five verses only. His kingdom is just. And I'm going to make a confession to you. I'm um, the product of upper middle class white parents who made sure I got a good education, who believed the 11th commandment is thou shalt get a good education for thy children. When we began to put our, our children, my wife and I put our children in, in the neighborhood school where we live in the inner city, my parents were aghast. Your parents are perhaps aghast at that notion. Many of us, our parents, did everything they could. They made sacrifices in order for, for people to get educations. But education is a great picture of how there is injustice. Okay? Um, I don't mean justice the way the wealthy, white, upper-middle-class, white guy, initially, Christian guy, initially thought of it. Because of what I originally thought, and I still understand this concept, I thought it was basically the bad guys getting what they deserve. You know, I just did jury duty two weeks ago. Ooh, wow. Man, the criminal justice system. Not sure about that. (laughs) Okay. Justice in the Bible is a multi-meaning word. There is powerful truth in that the guilt that I have incurred has taken from me, that Jesus Christ... For my sin for me, so that I, who was unjust, could be made just in, his, in the sight of God. But the justice I'm talking to you about, the justice of Psalm 72, is about equity and about fairness and about protecting the people who, in the rule of this evil king, get squashed the worst. And that's powerless people. People who do not have a defender. So the, the typical biblical formulation is, Widows who lack a husband to defend them. Orphans who lack a father or parent to defend them. And who else? Aliens and strangers. Foreigners. Don't speak the language. Don't have the rights of citizenship. There are other people who fall into the category. We're going to talk about it in a minute. But Jesus Christ, one of the primary indicators of his kingdom working is that there is 
protection and defense of afflicted and needy people. It's the five-verse, winning by half a verse, most accentuated thing about the Messianic kingdom, according to Psalm 72. May he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. May he defend the afflicted among the people, save the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressor. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and from violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. All right, so the verbs on top, this is what the Messiah does. These are the marks of the Messiah's kingdom. These should be the marks of the Messiah's people. They defend they save, they deliver, they take pity on, and they rescue. And the direct objects, the afflicted, the needy, the weak, and the oppressed. Let me say it again. It is a cardinal, perhaps the cardinal manifestation of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. I say it that way because it is a sideline for many Christians. It's a, oh yeah, that's kind of important. I get that. And I will check that box in a manageable way. But you think way too much about that. I can't tell you how many times I know this happened to Susan Post at Esperanza or other places in Augusta. Like, really nice, meaning, uh, well-meaning evangelical Christian people will come to look at our work in Memphis. And they'll, they'll look at it and they'll see... Oh, the patient care and tell them the story. Oh, we're delivering this many babies and doing this HIV care. And Are you sharing the gospel with people? Because I'm kind of suspicious that this is the social gospel. Like that's smallpox or something like that. I never have the guts to say it, but I want to say to them, like, are you meaningfully helping people in any way? I don't think so. Thus I have revealed myself to be a self-righteous horse's ass. (laughs) But you guys already knew that. It's now and not yet. Okay, there's untold amount of suffering globally and even nationally. And this involves you. 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 All right. Don't confuse. This is to the same point. Justice with equality, all right? And I have a little picture. It's imperfect, but I want you to try to get that. Okay, on the left is equality. But if you're that little kid on the right, it doesn't seem very equal to you. Should we expect a kid who's who's moved here after living as a refugee for years in a, in a refugee camp whose primary language is not English, to go into an American school and immediately learn and have the same expectations for that student to perform as an English speaker? I hope we wouldn't. The Messiah and the Messiah's people bring extra support. They see the people on the fringes, the people who are being left out, and they help, they, they try to make things right. All right, so going to give us a few examples. All right, let's, let's try to put a little bit of reality to this. Should we, the Christian Church of Jesus Christ, be concerned about human trafficking? Should we? Okay, absolutely. What could be worse? People who are being exploited for the purposes of labor or for sexual exploitation, people who don't have anyone to protect them, people who are slaves, effectively, Christian church, all right, anyone think we shouldn't do that? Good, good, all right, let's keep moving. What about unborn children? Is their blood precious in his sight? Are they vulnerable? All right. Now, I'm not asking a litmus test about abortion, but I'm asking this. Should the Church of Jesus Christ be concerned about unborn children and and their protection? Yes. Okay. There may be a couple people in the room a little uncomfortable about that in a way it wasn't the case even five or ten years ago. All right. 
You ready for the next one? What about Muslim refugees in a place like Syria? These, these people are Muslims. Like some of them are at risk of being radicalized and some of them hate you. Some of them really hate you. Should the Christian church of Jesus Christ in the present age be concerned about the vulnerable and oppressed who are refugees, even if they're Muslims? Yes. What about these people who are here illegally, who aren't obeying the laws of our country, who are trying to sop up all the benefits of America and take our jobs and is the language inflammatory enough for you? <laughs> Should we be providing care for those people? There were fewer yeses there. There were. <laughs> All right, I'm almost through. Some of you know that's an actress. That's Monique. She won a Best Supporting Actress Award for, for playing a role of an abusive African-American inner-city mother in a movie called Precious, which she was amazing in. This is, a, this is a little thing here for some Christian people. I'm Maybe nobody in this room, but what about that mom in the ER who called an ambulance because her kid had an earache? Uh-oh, there's a laugh over here. What about that patient who won't get off their cell phone when you, Mr. Doctor Man or Lady Doctor Man, come in the room to do the, huh? <laughs> what about that guy who's trying to get another 12 lore tab out of you and you know it? What I would love to smash in my own heart and in the heart of the church is this notion that there are deserving and undeserving poor people. Even now, some of you are going like, yeah, but. Well, so I'm going to try to dismantle your big butt. Using the Apostle Paul, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. If you think that if I think, let's forget about you, if I think in any way that I am a nanometer better than any patient I'm looking at, I've, I don't understand the gospel. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I was a slave to the powers of darkness. I was by nature an object of wrath. And yet I'm going to judge this person in front of me? Well, I do it. You do it. But it betrays a misunderstanding of the gospel. This is all of us, ladies and gentlemen. I am ungrateful. Why am I getting mad when the patient doesn't like the prescription I gave or didn't, you know, is, is not thankful? The nature of the gospel should tear that down inside of our hearts. Right? And it should remove this notion. Do I mean that you treat, that you give the drug seeker drugs every time? I don't mean that, do I? But i got to love that person, even when I'm calling them on their stuff. Same passage. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you, me, anyone is saved. It is a miracle of God when repentance happens and people turn to Jesus in faith and the Holy Spirit enters them. And until that miracle happens, everybody's the same. Whether they seem like your kind of people or not whether you feel love and compassion for them or not. 
I was in Steve Noblet's session before this one, and he was talking about this notion that's been popularized by Mother Teresa. Oh, when I pick up the dying person in the streets of Calcutta and I take them and I care for them and I bathe them, I am bathing Jesus. Yes. Okay? But I'll tell you from 20 years of experience, sometimes Jesus calls you names. Okay? Sometimes Jesus misunderstands what you're trying to do. Sometimes Jesus is manipulating and lying. And he deserves our love and care nonetheless. I'm preaching to myself. All right, so here's this fabled ER that I was talking about. And um, you can only work there if you wear a superhero T-shirt. That's the rules we have. All right, and... um, There was a night not many months ago where there were across the halls in room um, five and six, two people who each had pain complaints. And I found out later they came together and they were both trying to get narcotics. They were were boyfriend and girlfriend. Toothache on one side. I don't remember what the other one was. Um, This is a hospital that's got 100 psych beds. And so there are always people in the, in the emergency department who have various psychiatric illnesses, and some of them are you know, people screaming and yelling. Some of them, the scariest stuff are the personality disorders, right? There is, uh, it's in an inner city community, so there's violence. This was a weekend night, and there were, there were a couple of women who had been beaten, some bloodied. Um, Dakota, you were there. I don't know if you remember. Dakota helped me sew up. Wasn't that you? Yeah. So one of our residents was there like, it was mayhem. All right. I was in the middle of this hallway. And I was really honestly thought like, I don't ever want to come back here again. Like, where's the hyperspace button to get me out of here? There's manipulating drug seekers. There's crazy people. There's violence. It's too busy. It's too crazy. Nobody's going to thank me. I stopped and I retreated for a time and I, I prayed. I didn't get any epiphany at that point, but like I've come to realize that's exactly where the disciples of Jesus ought to be. Maybe not all the time. Maybe you can't stand it forever, but that's, oh, poor people and violence and oppression and addiction and mental illness. Yeah! Yeah? Who's with me? (laughs) I want to paraphrase this passage from Luke 6. You know the passage. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those who lend to you, whom you expect repayment, sorry, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full, but love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back, then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. All right, here's my paraphrase. If you treat patients only like yourselves, who you have a cultural connection with, how are you different than anybody else? If you only treat patients who will be grateful and thank you for your kind service, how are you like anybody else? If you only care for people who can pay you, how will you be anything different than the rest of the world? Noblet said in his session earlier, I think it's profound, Christian health care will look dramatically different from regular health care. Medicine is defiled. It actually has an amazing history. It would be a, a great talk, another talk. <clears throat> How Christian people took caring for the poor that was partly in place through the Greek and Roman systems and other cultures and infused it. We're going to talk a little bit about it, but um, it's messed up right now. It's all about money. Do I need to convince anybody in this room that we have an unjust healthcare system in this country? I hope not. And, and if you look at the world, it's even more stark, right? Like, we literally spend millions of dollars. There's been like two new drugs for tuberculosis and malaria in my flaming medical career of 25 years. 
we got four drugs for erections in the last ten years. Why? Money. 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 This is our city, Memphis. Um, this is a map that Jason helped me make also. Fifty people for every dot. Blue dots are black people. Red dots are white people. The few yellow people here are, are Latino populations. I joke that there are like only ten Asians in all of Memphis, so they don't, they don't have a map uh, dot yet. But um, two of them live at my house. The other eight are curing cancer at St. Jude Hospital. Um, This city is your city. I mean, if you look at Eric Fisher is a guy who does these maps. He does maps, racial demographic maps, every major city in the United States. And basically where you see racial minorities, you see health disparities. Okay, so it may be more yellow in your city or blue, but the breakdown of health disparities of social justice issues are largely along racial lines in our cities. And there are enough doctors for that county, but they are almost exclusively concentrated in areas where there are paying patients. Okay? So our thing that we've said for years here, doctors compete with doctors hoping to get patients, and here, patients compete with patients hoping to get doctors. Right? Not everybody, but some of the Christian healthcare workers of the world ought to look at that and say, that's for me. Health disparities don't have time to talk about them. You know about them. Those little crosses are where we opened health centers, the red ones, in the first 19 years of our work. And the, the three blue R's are where we've opened in the last year and a half. And um, we got a lot of work still to do. And we don't, we got all kinds of problems about the way we do it. And we're messed up. We got just, like, I'm not holding us up as a particular mob, but I'm telling you, we've been trying. Okay? And you can, you can do if you stick with things, you can do a lot. You can take care of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. You can do it on a scale that is like the kingdom of Jesus, the way it starts like a mustard seed and then grows. And what's happened in Memphis, there could be five of those same sorts of movements in our city and ten in Southern California and Detroit and Los Angeles. Like, Everywhere, anywhere, to just pick a place. The history of the church, we have five minutes left, is to do this. Okay? The Council of Nicaea is perhaps the most famous council in the history of the church. It happened just as Constantine, the Roman emperor, made it possible for Christianity to not, to be, to not be outlawed, the, to be tolerated. And the Council of Nicaea was the Christian leaders from the known Roman world who came together. Most of them had scars. I read an essay in Christianity Today recently about a bishop without an eye who lost it when he was persecuted for his faith earlier. Like, this is at the end of the persecutions of the Christian church. But the Council of Nicaea, now beginning to be favorably viewed by the government, said, from now on, whenever there's a new Roman garrison city where the Romans put troops, we'll do two things. We'll build a church, and we'll build a hospital. Because the Christian church from the very beginning, from the time of Jesus' board, cared about the poor and the sick and the dying. This is Julian. He's known as Julian the Apostate. Because if you look at the date, Constantine was 325, this guy was 360. This was the tail end. This was the last time there was persecution against the church because Julian wanted to recover the great times of Rome. And the consensus was one of the reasons Rome stinks right now is because we've taken on this Christian God and we've hacked off the pantheon of Roman gods. So he was a Republican back then. He was a conservative. He wanted to take back the country for gods, right? I'm pretty much a Republican. I'm just making a joke here. I don't know. Pretty much. All right. This is, this is what Julian said. Atheism, that's Christianity, right? Atheists are people who don't believe in the Roman gods in this quote. Atheism has been specifically advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that the godless Galileans, that's us, the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor but for ours as well. 
This is your DNA, people. This is who you are from the beginning. This is from the Middle Ages. This is a history book. Christian hospitals maintained libraries and training programs, and doctors compiled their medical and pharmacological studies and manuscripts. Thus, inpatient medical care, in the sense of what we today consider a hospital, was an invention driven by Christian mercy and Byzantine innovation. Facilities included systematic treatment procedures and specialized wards for various diseases. What we need now is Christian mercy and American innovation, or maybe forget America, like Christian innovation and Christian innovation. Mercy and innovation. These are three of the big shots of the Protestant missionary movement from the 18th and 19th centuries. All of them used in varying degrees of healthcare ministries as part of what they did. Um, you remember this guy, Robert? Uh, Robert Campbell invited me to his historic church in Augusta, Georgia, First Presbyterian. And we talked about this guy. This guy was a Presbyterian doctor in the, I can't remember, it was like the 1880s, I think. I, I got cut off there. But he went to Korea, and he got nowhere. He was an American physician. He was sent by the Presbyterian Church of America. Not the, PC, not the PCA as we know it now, but forget about that. He, he was a Presbyterian doctor, right? And he, he got nowhere until a relative of the emperor was, there was an assassination attempt on the, a relative of the emperor, a nephew, and the guy was dying. He had a pussed out wound, apparently, and they finally called out of, out of desperation this American guy, and he lanced the ball and drained the pus out, and the guy recovered. And the emperor, from that day forth, gave favor to the American healthcare people, and they opened hospitals, and then they brought in teachers, and then they brought in catechists. And within 40 years, there was a Presbyterian church in Korea led by Koreans. All right, and every time I'm on the other side of the world in the darkest, scariest place, you're going to run into a Korean, right? <laughs> Ten of them. They're in the corner of the Kabul airport. Blessed be the Lord. Right? They're, they're praying and worshiping. They're awesome. The Christian movement in the Korean Peninsula, honestly, by the grace of God, was initiated by a healthcare, an American healthcare worker. All right. So we're effectively done. Here, here's what I'm saying, especially to the young people in this room. Like, forgive the poker analogy, all right? The gambling analogy, but go all in. The devil is dark and powerful. Suffering is great. The problems are huge. They're not going to be solved with a little stuff around the edges. In fact, that's a guarantee for people to get more disenchanted and cynical and to quit, is if they don't really dive in, if they don't persevere for the long haul. The kingdom has come, and yet the kingdom has not yet come. It's hard, but it's right and good. It is a literal participation in the redemption of the world that comes about because of Jesus. Donald says when I make a, well, I think I make a good point, I, I do that. I don't know if it's true or not. So. All right, and last pop culture reference. Maybe you like Marvel, so picture the Avengers if you're not a DC fan, okay? Do it in a team of people, okay? Do it with people who have gifts and attributes. Like, don't try to do this alone or just with one or two Z's. Like, I've learned over the years, you've got to have the body of Jesus. He, he's the head, and then he gives gifts. The Holy Spirit gives gifts to people, and people are administrators and clinicians and um, prophets and apostles and... If you really know about the superheroes, you know it's not really glamorous. I mean, the suits look great, I'm sure, right? And being that buff, but how much time do they have to spend in the gym? You've got to worry about that. And, all right, but if you really know about superheroes, they're, actually their life's pretty hard. They, they live differently than everybody else. They're misunderstood. They're often lied about and persecuted if you read the comic books, even if you go to the movies. Batman's the Dark Knight. It's what you're called to. You're called to the life of Jesus. He was misunderstood. He was betrayed by his closest friends. 
He was lied about. The people who should have received him and recognized him for who he was and what he was doing rejected him. He suffered. He, he did it alone. Great God in heaven, we bow our hearts to you. We know that you alone are God. Jesus, we believe that you are the king of Psalm 72. We know that your kingdom is eternal. We long for your appearing. We long to see the truth of your kingdom and the eternality of your kingdom become permanent. We long for you to work through us and bring the prosperity and the thriving and the flourishing that is a mark of you and your kingdom in the world now as we wait for a perfect, flourishing kingdom in the future. We know and believe and want to be part of your kingdom being universal, that you would prepare and send out people from all nations to all nations, that every king, every people everywhere would bow their knee to you and declare that you're Lord. And lastly, you are a just king. And we want to be agents of your justice. We want to see the weak and afflicted and the needy defended, served, rescued. We can only do it if the Holy Spirit moves in us. We pray for that. We pray that in all of it, it would bring honor to your great name. We pray in your great name. Amen. Thank you all.